Good morning. It's sweet to be here worshiping together. Forgiven people. Um, who are just very, very blessed. We're going to be in Psalm 146. You can go ahead and turn there. I'm encouraged this morning because I get to preach a message that I, I think is very encouraging, and then I'm a little intimidated because it's extremely challenging. Um, because the thing that encourages us is the thing that challenges us. So I'll pray, and then we'll get to the text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Every one of us woke up this morning with a borrowed breath. Your word says that in peace we lay down and sleep. For you alone make us dwell in safety. And it goes on to say that we rise again the next morning because you have kept us. So already, even before we dig into the word, we are very blessed with another day. As well, we've shared fellowship with one another in Christ this morning already. We have worshiped you in spirit and in truth. And now we get to go to the word. We don't have to whisper. And that in itself is a blessing. Lord, I want to pray for uh, another local church here, actually Ridgecrest, that, that planted this church. I want to lift them up to you this morning, and uh, particularly in praying that your will would be done. I know that Matthew Beasley is preaching in view of a call at Ridgecrest, and we have been praying for a pastor for that body of believers for some time now. And so it's an encouragement that you've brought someone who is preaching in view of a call, and so my prayer is for wisdom and discernment for the Beasley family, wisdom and discernment for the Ridgecrest family. Uh, I pray that you would guide those who make the important decisions, like who will be pastoring. Give them a measure of wisdom that's beyond themselves and that only exists plurally. Help them to be wise and careful in their decision. And I pray uh, that as Matt preaches this morning that um, he would be encouraged at such a sweet opportunity as preaching, particularly in view of a call. Lord, our, our desire here as we gather is that your will be done. We want to understand things that we could not understand if not for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for bringing us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the first half of Psalm 46, and this week, we'll look at the second half. And so, I'm going to read the entire psalm, and y'all uh, read along with me, and then we'll look at some specifics. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, 
whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps his faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Last week, we continued our conversation about what it means to walk in biblical boldness. What does it mean to rightly exercise our restored dominion in Christ? And we continued that conversation by engaging this psalm. And in this psalm, what we found was a psalmist who is rejoicing boldly for good reason. The first thing revealed to us was to walk in biblical boldness and exercise the restored dominion that we have in Christ. The child of God, you, children of God, are to be ceaseless worshipers. We saw Elisha saying, bring me a musician when it was time for a big decision to be made. That's not our normal response. We saw Israel led in worship by a Levitical choir who led with instruments of power, not just background music. These verses do away with all notions of worship and song being some lesser thing. It is extremely important. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being is a bold statement from the ceaseless worshiper about the unceasing greatness of our God. Second, we considered that to trust in God and not in the influential is to keep in step with the Spirit of God who may sometimes urge you to proclaim when the time is right. And the Spirit may also keep you from proclaiming when the time is not right. Remember Asia and Bithynia. There was a moment where the Asians and the Bithynians did not hear the gospel because of the work of the Spirit. So that tells us we have to be careful to to keep in step with the Spirit, to not just kick doors open and and say, I don't care, it doesn't matter. Boldness is not not void of discretion. And so uh, we saw that for a time they didn't hear the word because of the work of the Spirit, but it was so that they would be more ready to hear it a few years later when all of Asia was reached with the word. Very encouraging. And we finally came to the difficult question at the end of last week that what do you do when the Spirit of God leads you to proclaim when it seems unsafe and risky? And the answer is, put not your trust in princes and proclaim. Proclaim, even when it's risky and unsafe if the Spirit's leading you. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God. So in one sense, last week, we kind of took this broad perspective of the Christian life. We took a look at the broad perspective of the Christian life, and we can sum that up by saying, we are a singing, proclaiming, God-trusting, spirit-led group of ceaseless worshipers. We are a singing, proclaiming, God-trusting, spirit-led group of ceaseless worshipers. This week, what the psalm does is it begins to narrow And so we got the broad perspective of who we are, but the psalm narrows to show what the day-to-day life of such a worshiper looks like. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Day-to-day walking in boldness. 
day-to-day exercising this restored dominion, day-to-day not giving way to dysfunction, but to faithfulness. So we're, an- we're answering, for one who is a singing, proclaiming, God-trusting, spirit-led, ceaseless worshiper, what does it look like every day? So we're going to get more specific. Look at verse 6. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. One problem with boldness is the possibility of coming across arrogantly. Um, If you've ever known someone who's particularly bold, they've probably been accused of arrogance at some point, maybe sometimes rightly, maybe sometimes wrongly. But the issue is that when we want to be biblically bold, we can come across as arrogant. So I want to look at this and see what is the thing that keeps boldness from coming across as arrogance, because they're not synonyms. I want that to be very clear. They're not the same thing. You don't have to put up with one to have the other. One is faith and the other is sin. Boldness is born out of worship, and arrogance is born out of self-centeredness, not worship of God. The psalmist here can boldly proclaim, don't put your trust in princes, but if you were a prince, you might be like, well, this guy's just arrogant. But the psalmist can boldly proclaim the foolishness of putting our trust in the influential because of two things, his right view of God and his right relationship with God. It's not enough just to have a right view of God, just so we know. It's not enough to just think rightly. His right view of God and his right relationship with God are the things that kept him from falling into arrogance and rightly walking in boldness. If my only reason for not putting my trust in another is because I believe in myself or because I have a sense of self-reliance or because I don't need you, I'm awesome, that's arrogance. My speech will be fueled by pride, not Godward trust. The best way to extinguish the smoldering fire of arrogance is to always have in perspective the God who made heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in in them, who keeps faith forever. That's the perspective that we have to have. Of this huge God who does way more than you could ever do on your best day or your best life, he does way more. And that perspective keeps us from arrogance. This is a perspective that in every circumstance, in every scenario, they can kind of zoom out and take more of a bird's eye view. And you can zoom out in every scenario and say, if I want to live according to my created purpose, namely to put God's glory on display, I must remember first that I'm created. Please know that each of you were created. I am on earth. I did not make it. Mankind has yet to ascend to the heights of the heavens, though we've tried. Mankind has yet to plumb the depths of the ocean, though we've tried. It always cracks me up when they're like, wow, we found like, you know, a thousand new species. Like, I thought y'all had everything figured out. Huh. I'm small. I need the Creator. I need the creator in every way to make sense of this if I have any hope of pleasing him. So we can zoom out and say, I am not the creator. I am, I am humbling myself before a very holy God who has plans for my life and the way I'm supposed to move. And that's what keeps us from falling into arrogance yet being able to still walk in biblical boldness. The difference then occurs in the person who you're engaging. 
There's a difference in the perspective of the person or people who you are boldly engaging. Rather than seeing an arrogant person who is high and lifted up, they see a humble worshiper before a holy God who is high and lifted up. There's a big difference. So as a rule or a measuring point, if your boldness, if in your boldness, you lose sight of God and you dismiss the Spirit and you're just being loud, then you will slip from biblical boldness into arrogance. And what we have to see this morning is that in the presence of God, there is room for boldness, but there is not room for arrogance. In the presence of God, there's room for boldness, but there is not room for arrogance. It says he keeps the faith forever. We're talking about God keeping the faith forever. Our faith is in God, and God's faith is in God. There's nothing higher. He doesn't put his faith in something higher. If he's keeping the faith forever, he's keeping the faith that is within himself So we can ask, what has he always done? What has God always done and what is God currently doing? Because if that's how he keeps faith forever, I'm supposed to keep faith forever. What has God always done and what is God currently doing? Because whatever it is, we can look there and see God keeping faith. And we need not look any further than the next verse. Look at verse 7 through 9. Talking about a God who executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. So I want to work backwards in this set of verses. The last thing that we just saw was that the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Y'all follow me here. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This should make us ask two questions. First, what is the way of the wicked? I do not want to be in that way. If he brings them to ruin, what is the way of the wicked so I can know not to do that? And the second question is, what is the way of the righteous and faithful? What the psalmist is doing is purposefully contrasting two ways of life. This is what God does. This is how he keeps the faith. And the way of the wicked he'll bring to ruin. The psalmist is putting these two ways of life against each other. Because one is of God and one is not of God. Turn to Psalm 37. I'm looking for a definition here of the way of the wicked. I'm looking for a definition of the way of the wicked. Any time that you can find a definition from the author of the same book, it's really beneficial. If you can find a definition from the author of the same book within the same book, it's even more beneficial. And so I want to know what is the author of the psalm saying about the way of the wicked. Look at verses 1 through 2. Fret not yourself, 37, 1 through 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So essentially... Here he is repeating or saying again what was also said in Psalm 146, which is the way the wicked will come to ruin. And that should have an impact on the way that you live. Now look at verse 12. I want to know what does the way of the wicked look like. Look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Look at verse 14. 
The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Look at verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. And in verse 35, it says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. I want you to notice, you can turn back to Psalm 146, but I want you to notice that the way of the wicked, this is important, the way of the wicked is largely seen in how they treat other people. The way of the, the poor, the needy, the righteous, the upright, the way of the wicked is largely seen in the way that they treat other people. So to find the way of the godly, we need to remember a definition from last week. To put your trust in God is to keep in step with the Spirit of God. And just as the way of the wicked is seen in how they treat others, so it is the way with the righteous. The way of the righteous is largely seen in how we treat other people. It differs from the way that the wicked treat other people. I'm praying that John 13, 35, as I read this, that it hits you as hard as it's supposed to. Don't turn there. Listen, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we've, we can identify a problem, and then we can identify an aim. Remember, this is a psalm of bold praise to God. And what we rejoice in, that which we rejoice in, we join in. So there's a real problem if our song doesn't match up with our lives. If our song doesn't match up with our lives, then we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites whose lips are far from their hearts. We utter things that we don't mean. And those listening will know that we don't mean it when our lives don't match up with it. What I'm getting at is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. We express God's love the way that God expresses God's love. We express God's love the way that God expresses God's love. Look back on your week. Have you expressed God's love? How do you know if it's God's love? Have you had an aim towards other people in all of your dealings? We express God's love the way that God expresses God's love. And we don't have to go far to see. I'm gonna read these verses again because I want them to sink in. I'm gonna read verses seven through nine, but I want you to hear them and listen to them as expressions of the love of a trustworthy and a praiseworthy God. How does a trustworthy and a praiseworthy God express his love? He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. And the way of the wicked the Lord brings to ruin. This is the way that is not brought to ruin. 
To do these things is the kind of living that endures. This is what is needed to boldly fight against the way of the wicked. You know now that the wicked are going to try to bring down the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the upright and the righteous. What are you going to do about that? That's what the scripture is calling us to this morning. We need to love as God loves to boldly fight against the way of the wicked. So my bold expression of God's love is to have the same aim and the same impact as God's expression of his own love. We don't just be randomly nice and that's it. God loves very specifically in many ways. We need to try to match up with that. So what that means is this. You and I need to be seeking out the kind of people that the world wants to ignore and run from. This is so hard. You and I need to be seeking out the kind of people that the world wants to ignore and or run from. And do you know what comes along with that? Inconvenience. If we do that, we're welcoming inconvenience into our lives. Well, doesn't that go against everything that's smart? I don't know, does it? Inconvenience to welcome those people into our lives. I am stressed by my life that is mainly filled with wealthy Christians. I'll say that again. I am stressed by my life that is mainly filled with wealthy Christians. You don't have to be a millionaire to be considered wealthy. Because of where you're sitting right now, you're among the richest people who have ever stepped foot on the earth. So if that's stressful, what happens when I welcome in the oppressed and the hurting and the poor and the hungry? What do I do with that inconvenience? Fill your life with the oppressed and execute justice for them. You will be brokenhearted over their injustice. You will lose sleep over it. You will be disgusted by how heartless people can be towards other people. Give food to the hungry. This is what boldness is, in case you're wondering, what we're talking about right here. Give food to the hungry, and you'll be broken over the abundance that we so take for granted every day. We open a pantry full of food and say there's nothing to eat. You'll be consumed with the difficulty that for every child you feed, there are a thousand more who are still hungry. That's going to that's gonna bring stress to your life. Consider the prisoners for a moment who have been written off as having thrown their lives away. Does not the love of Christ reach through prison bars? Is evangelism not necessary for the convicted? Let's say that it is. Do you believe that the eyes of the physically and spiritually blind can be opened? Do you have time to stoop to help the one who is bowed down? Do you have an eye to the one who is sojourning in our midst? Is there any room in your schedule to hold the hand of the weeping widow? Are you eager to tell the fatherless children about the love of their heavenly father and then take part in their lives expressing that very love? 
If we're honest, most of us are miserable in our risk-free lives. Miserable. We're choking on our conveniences, and we're suffocated by our safety. My question is this. When did Christianity become such a risk-free endeavor? When did Christianity become such a risk-free, stress-free, inconvenience-free endeavor? Earlier this week, I read a very convicting prayer from a dad. His prayer was this. Make me a father, O Lord, who will show my sons not a path of ease and comfort, but the ability to accept the challenges of stress and difficulty. Make me a father who, who shows not my children the, ease, the path of ease and comfort, but the ability to accept the challenges of stress and difficulty. What are your children's perspectives on stress and difficulty? Are you raising them up in a way where they accept challenges that go along with what God calls us to? Are they watching it in your lives? Or are you teaching them that the main goal in life is to guard against stress and difficulty at all costs? Find the path of ease and comfort and stay on it. Hold on to the job no matter what. I don't deal with stress well. Right here. I don't deal with stress well. That's confession. I've been stressed out about sharing this message on dealing with stress well. It's confession. I don't deal well with the stress. I thought that I did until a few months ago. And God grabbed my attention. On a beautiful Saturday morning, I was celebrating a sweet occasion with some friends. I had not slept much the night before because there's much to do in the life of a busy pastor. I began to swap stories with a friend, as many of us do and maybe already have done this morning, about the craziness of our unrelenting schedules. Have you had that conversation today? The craziness of our unrelenting schedules. And in my arrogance, I said, oh, well, I'll rest when I die. <laughs> I'll rest when I die. Little did I know, one hour later, I would actually feel like I was dying. God, in a less than subtle way, grabbed my attention. I was driving down the road. I had to pull over. My heart, like it does sometimes when I step into this pulpit, was racing and it felt like the lights were going out. And I was filled with a very real fear that if the lights did go out, they might not come back on. I've never felt this before in my life. I tried to recall scripture for comfort. And the only thing that I could come up with was this very night your soul is required of you. Not helpful. <laughs> I didn't know what I was feeling but it was terrifying and I was not in control. After visiting a doctor and a cardiologist, I found that it was complications due to high blood pressure. Now I'm 31 years old and I have to take blood pressure medication. Part of the problem's hereditary, but you need to know that part of the problem is sin. Part of the problem is sin. I don't handle the stresses of life in a biblical manner all the time. 
I confess this in front of you because where there is confession, the Bible says there is healing. And the healing isn't limited to the confessor. It's really good to address the areas where we aren't really trusting God. It's really good to address the areas that we aren't really trusting God. For in doing so, we can repent. Part of it might be, I know it is for me, and I would ask you, have we become obsessed with our time? Have we become just absolutely obsessed with our time? God has numbered our days before we ever took our first breath, yet we act like there's never enough time. That's one major area where I find myself not rightly handling stressful difficulties in a biblical manner. If we truly put our trust in him, we must also trust that we're not in a perpetual state of not having enough time, a perpetual state of always being or feeling late. In a sense, we're looking at God and saying, I know what you're calling me to, but you're crazy. There's not enough time. It's not right. If we did trust God with those kinds of things, the result of such trust would be abundant love toward others. That's what the result would be. I'd have time in my schedule. The lack of such trust would be a life that turns inward, focuses on itself, and sometimes loses sight of the needs of others altogether. I mean, really ask yourselves, have I lost sight of the needs of others completely? There was a study done at Princeton Theological Seminary that's very interesting. A couple of psychologists decided to conduct a study inspired by the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? If not, you should go read it after this. It's very important. They met with a group of seminarians, bright minds who want to pursue pastoral and ministerial opportunities in life. Love people, lead them, help them. So these psychologists met with a group of seminarians individually and asked each one to prepare a short extemporaneous talk on a biblical theme, a given biblical theme. Then walk over to a nearby building to present it. So the psychologist uh, has an experimenter. The experimenter gets in the room with these seminarians and says, okay, I need you to prepare a short extemporaneous talk. Uh, We're going to meet here. Oh, and you're going to go over to that building over there to give that talk. Along the way to the presentation, each student ran into a man slumped in an alley, head down, eyes closed, coughing and groaning. Placed there by the psychologists, obviously. The question was, who would stop and help? Who would stop and help? Three variables were added to make it interesting. First, before the experiment even started, they gave the students a questionnaire about why they had chosen to study theology. Did they see religion as a means for personal and spiritual fulfillment? Or were they looking for a practical tool for finding meaning in everyday life? Then they varied the subject of the theme the students were asked to talk about. Some of them were asked to speak on the relevance of the professional clergy to the religious vocation. And others were given the parable of the Good Samaritan. Go over there, give an extemporaneous talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Finally, the instructions given by the experimenters to each student varied as well. In some cases, as the students left to go give their talk, the experimenter would look at his watch and say, oh, you're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. We better get going. And in other cases, he would say, it'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you. So you might as well head over there now, but you're not in a hurry. The psychologist concluded, 
Indeed, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way. That's not what we were hoping for there. Going to give a talk on the Good Samaritan and you step over someone. Why? Because you're in a hurry. The only thing that really mattered was whether the student was in a rush. Of the group that was in a rush, only 10% stopped to help. That means 90% didn't. And of the group that knew they had a few minutes to spare, still only 63% stopped to help this person groaning and coughing and killed over. The words, oh, you're late, had the effect of making someone who was ordinarily compassionate into someone who was indifferent to suffering. Have we become indifferent to suffering because we feel like we're always late? Have we become numb and indifferent to the suffering of others because we feel like there's never enough time or there's no way I could fit anything else in my schedule? The verses in Psalm 146 are convicting and personal. Turn over to Psalm 39. What I want us to see here is the same writer realizing something about his life in verse 4. Psalm 39, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days, and let me know how fleeting I am. That prayer right there is something that many of us would avoid like the plague. I do not want to know my day. What? Just let me go. Let me do what I need to do. I don't want to know the fleeting nature of my days. O Lord, make me know the end, my end, and what is the measure of my days. I mean, how fleeting I am. Oh, if we could just know how fleeting we were, it would make such a huge difference. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing, surely for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You can turn back to Psalm 146. Make me know the measure of my days, how fleeting I am. My hope is in you. The realities about the brevity of your life are linked to our hope in God. So what does that mean? What it means is this. The shortness of our lives should not lead to guarding against all difficulty and stress and inconvenience. Quite the opposite. According to this, the shortness of our lives should lead us to love as God loves. And this is boldness. The shortness of your lives, the brevity of your lives, the fleeting measure of your days should lead you to love as God loves, not guard against inconvenience. Execute justice and give food and set free and open eyes and lift up and love and watch over and uphold. 
For our world is full of those who are oppressed and hungry and imprisoned and blind and bowed down and sojourning, widows and fatherless. And having these kind of people in our life will be inconvenient. But your created purpose is not to remain free from inconvenience. Let me say that again. Your created purpose is not to remain free from inconvenience, but to love as God loves, to love as you have been loved by God. Having a job and a family was never meant to kill you, man. I had to remind myself of that Thursday and again on Friday, again on Saturday, again last night. Having a job and a family was never meant to kill you. I've said that a lot. I will keep saying it. Likewise, it was never meant to keep you from expressing love the way that God expresses love. No one can say, I see what God's calling me to, but I got a wife and kids. It's not how it works. This room right here is not full of poor, hungry, oppressed people. You deal with your oppressions. I know that. I know for some of y'all, y'all have been oppressed in very real ways. But this is a room full of incredibly blessed people, incredibly equipped people, people who have been given a message and been given the goods and been given the Holy Spirit to really love other people. It's not generally a room just full of poor, hungry, oppressed people. To find those people, this blessed people will likely have to go and look for them. You'll pass by them every day, but you've got to be paying attention. Frankly, here in Greenville, most of them will be found on the north side of town. And they probably won't ask for your help. Many of them have been treated like projects already. But please notice that God does not treat people like projects. Every bit of his love is relational. So this morning, I'm not asking you to go and offer your token to a poor person. Rather, I think the word is encouraging us to go and form relationships, make disciples, get to know people who were created in God's image, repent for feelings of indifference toward their suffering, find out what their needs are as you get to know who they are. That's the difference between treating someone like a project and a person. Seek to lift their burdens that they may hear God's truth. Turn to Matthew 25. We'll close with this verse. So to be clear, God has placed a call on your lives to love as he is loved. That's boldness. He reigns forever. The way of the wicked he'll bring to ruin, so don't live according to the way of the wicked. but live according to the way of your God who is full of love. As I read this, I want you to realize that well, you realize what the Holy Spirit leads you to realize. I'm going to read Matthew 25 verse 31. I read this for the first time last night in light of Psalm 146 and it ran me through. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, in this final judgment, will say to those on his right, Listen, come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, Jesus. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I want you to notice, they didn't strike the person who was hungry and thirsty. They just didn't give him anything. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. It wasn't a matter of being hostile to the stranger. You just didn't welcome them. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, and this is the scariest part to me, they said, Lord, they thought they were addressing their Lord. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God's bringing this stuff to the final judgment. It scares me because I'm concerned that over the years we have become much better at caring for one another. As it says in Galatians 6, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest. Let us do good to all people, especially those in the household of faith. But this household of faith who has learned to, to minister well to each other, we have to do a better job of reaching out. Whether or not we expressed love the way that God expresses love will be brought into account at the final judgment. This is not a scare tactic. I just read you God's breathed out word. We cannot be indifferent toward the suffering and needs and pains and heartaches of other people. The gospel, rightly understood, compels us to meet others' needs. There are many in this community who are hungry. Oppression 
is a far-reaching thing. Executing justice for the oppressed is something we could talk about a lot and do very little. We have in our world the problem of injustice, the problem of people not getting the food they need, the problem of children going unloved, no homes. We have human trafficking and a slave industry that is revolting beyond your comprehension. And I'm just... I say to you, as you did it to one of the least... Of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's Jesus. The gospel rightly understood compels us to meet others' needs. So I'll close with an encouragement that goes with this great challenge. It's verse 10 in Psalm 146. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, to hear the word is not to be doers of the word. At this point, we've heard something very challenging, and we have not done anything. My prayer is for a balance in our lives where we can have jobs and love our families, but not dismiss those who are hurting. hope is that we can be people who work hard, live quietly, earn a living, members of a church, but who are not indifferent to the suffering of the oppressed and the hungry and the poor. Lord, run my life through with this. Let us see that because our help is in the God of Jacob and our hope is in the everlasting Lord, who is perfectly trustworthy and perfectly praiseworthy, help Help those realities to inform the way we respond to opportunities, the way our eyes are opened to people in need. For most of my Christian life, helping someone who's actually in need was sort of an anomaly that made its way into a sermon illustration, that's made its way into a personal testimony that's really neat. It should be normal for us. Lord, I confess my sin in this area and I want to repent. Help me. Help us to deal with the stresses of life in a way that says, you know what, it's worth it because this is what our Lord calls us to. We want to love as he loves. Lord, as I consider you reaching into the future generations and being Lord over them, I'm just terrified at the thought of us raising up children who all they want to do is make enough money to not have to worry. That's such a small, small, 
small perspective. Lord, help us to be faithful. There is no one like you. There is none who gives you counsel. As we set our hand to things like this and as we aim to respond obediently, I pray that we would be encouraged by God who gently leads those that are with young. Lord, please, please keep us from being hypocrites. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.